Right. <laughs> Father Darge said he saw you. He has to have a photo shoot. <laughs> I fly here and sort of get the outsiders. You logged into it? I don't. You logged into it? Yes. There you are. That was here. Yes, and, and they said he built one for quite a while, but I haven't seen one in 10 years. To me, that's new. I you said Richard, like Eric, Richard brings the kids. So, I share a church pavilion. Is that where you like, you lodged in the church pavilion? Yeah. Okay. Yes, oh, yeah. Do you know the password for that? Uh, yeah, it's uh, Wi-Fi pound 2020. I think. I think with a capital W, maybe. There's a couple of nuances. Pound W, did you say? 2020. Thank you. Very good, Diane. Good? Yes. Good. What the big piece? Well, we got to start. It's nine thirty. Lord, with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scripture written for our learning, grant to men such wise, hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Make a mess with our fruitcake service, which is very good. Wish we could offer you a piece online, but. That technology has not been developed yet. So we are uh, in John 12, and I, I noticed something. I look at my notes, uh, the email I sent out today, that I actually, um, my actual reading schedule says we're doing John 12 again next week. Yeah. So, I, so we actually have an extra week. Yeah. I wasn't like, I didn't think that John 12 needed two weeks. Well, it was I... just a typo. So oh. we actually have an extra week. So I have to revise it. You have to set it out, send it out. You keep sending misinformation. So if anyone was really counting on two weeks of John 12, and that's a deal killer, I apologize. But that was not the, that was not the intent. We might linger. Yeah, might linger. Might linger. That's right. So uh, anyway, good morning to all. According to what you sent out, you said John 12 for two weeks, and then it's followed by John 14. So I assumed it was just a typo. And next week, that we weren't, that it, it wasn't like the 13 being the unlocked, like the floor that we're skipping. Uh, no, because, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, Chris, I always appreciate when people actually 
you know, read, oh, look, and, and actually not only found the error, but resolved the yeah, error by did. logical yeah. uh, deduction from yeah. So, uh, so we're, we're at a point in the gospel where um, the opposition to Jesus is heightening on the part of the leadership. It's very clear that uh, they're just looking for a time to um, arrest him and remove him from the picture. We had the prophecy last time, the, the ironic prophecy that it was propitious that one man should die for the people, which they meant we, we kill him and we save the people from Roman attack, which, which of course we understand it means he dies, we all can save. But, um, and also the, the um, interestingly, the resurrection of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus, heightened that opposition. Because rather than saying, oh, he's raising the dead, maybe we ought to take another look, they realize, oh, he raised the dead, now he's got real support. So now we, we doubly have to oppose it. So that's what we're kind of getting into now in chapter 12. Uh, which is interesting human nature, but you yes. know, that, that, that we, we tend to lock in our positions and no contrary evidence will allow us to come off of them. Um, this is spiritual blindness. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And it, it's, it's also significant in, in um, when we think about sort of modern manifestations of this with um, or contemporary, I should say, that when people just don't see and actually, you know, you can only overcome that by a miracle of healing. You can't overcome it by talking to someone out of it. So when you see that, you just have to learn to pray. And and uh, that's the most effective. It doesn't mean you don't talk to people, but something has to happen to come in to give a different perspective. So. Okay, we're heading into um, Holy Week. Verse 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been raped, who had, who, um, what was, who had been dead, who, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made a, him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. <laughs> this must be, that's the word I'm looking for, a strangely wonderful meal. You know, they're having a meal with Jesus when just four days ago, their brother was dead. They're the mourners, and so if you can imagine having gone to a funeral, and buried a relative, and then next week we're just going to sit down and have a meal. That would be, it's just, just to think existentially what that feels like. That's a, hmm, Lazarus is there. You were dead, but you're not dead. But he, you know, it's like, what's it all mean in terms of, because it's not clear to anybody what Jesus is going to do, and especially clear that what he's now going to do is go and die. So it's all kind of disconcerting. Interesting conversation here. <laughs> but but I think sometimes there anal analogously we can find ourselves in a certain situation where we 
understand something God has done sitting in in the recognition of that work, but also knowing that doesn't mean that you know other painful things aren't going to happen. It's just that kind of feel. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. So, in the context just of the story that we've just read about Lazarus, and the great sadness of Mary and Martha, and the great joy when Jesus answered their Sabbath resurrection, the act of worship here of just sort of that sort of speechless devotional worship of, of Mary, and um, costly oil. Um, so, but it's an act of, of worship which Jesus freely accepts, um, and. There is a bit of a commentary here on worship because you you there 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 can be this objection to worship, like what's done in church, why do you spend money on you name it when it could be given somewhere. So let's just read the next lines and, and then unpack that a little bit. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And it's an objection not unlike other objections to devotion to worship as impractical, something you know, effective, efficient could have been done with it. Um, now, It seems there's a balance here, obviously, you know, that, that um, you can devote so much money to sort of acts of worship to the neglect of, of, of the obvious neglect of people around you. So this doesn't, this, what's being taught here is not simply that, um, you know, whatever we do in worship is justified or that there's never a reason to balance um, devotion to God with devotion to God and his people. But it certainly does make the point that worship is, is worthy of effort and expense in and of itself as an expression of our, of our devotion to God. And in fact, in my own um, practical observation about it, I and mean, even our, our small little experience here over maybe 30, 35 years. Um, a little bit of rain, they start driving crazy. How long we can get, keep that going? Got more? All right, so, um, uh, that actually that the worship of God when it's promoted in a good way actually increases devotion to the poor. 
so that people, you know, even when you're building the church, when you're building a church, you should you should give it, you know, name your thing. But the reality is, because we built a church where we worship God and, and draw people in, we give so much more money to help or, or so much more to help people in need than we ever could have had we not devoted to worship. And, and I think there is a a parallel here with our summary of the law. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. That's the first and great. The second is like it. You love your neighbor and yourself. And when we do love God that way, he gets our first and best. There's a corresponding concern for and response to the needs around us. And so these aren't really competing um, principles. Um, and again, I'll just put it out that since we have this church, we we've, we we give we are able that we do so much more than we ever were. We met in the shopping center or rent a building. More people are drawn to God, more people are to worship it in our community, and then through that, it enabled us to give a lot more stuff away. We give a pretty generous amount of money away, pretty consistently. So, anyway. I think it's actually the um, and and even Mary, who's doing this, would herself not have said, you know, like she is heartless to the poor. She's making that to worship. It's Judas, as, as we get to see here. And incidentally, when she when he says, um, "Why was this fragrant oil not sold for three hundred denarii?" That would be just about a year a sal year salary. Um, so this is really valuable oil. Um, it may be I, I don't I don't have a I don't really have a background. Nobody has a background story that they made it up. But you know where she got this oil. It could be that this is part of how she, you know, how wealth was accumulated. You had a pressure that that could be used, could be sold. Um, you know, we had uh, like in the Old Testament, this woman, the Shunammite woman, who's told, "I was to keep filling up the jars of the oil and fill and sell it." So it just may have been part of the wealth that she now. So the and this is this is where worship is. It's like I'm taking freely something that is very valuable and I'm just giving it freely to God. So verse six gives us the the lowdown on Judas that he said this not that he cared for the poor. But because he was a thief <laughs> and had the money box and he used to take what was put into it. So he was the treasurer and he was he was altering the books. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. So there's a unique moment here in the incarnation life of our Lord where they, he is physically with them, and and um, so he, he validates her active worship. Choosing to what? Choosing Judas as one of yeah. Oh yeah. When even I, I think about it, that here, so he used to take money from the purse 
And Jesus didn't, I mean, Jesus must know this. Right. He hasn't called them out, hasn't, he's let it run it, he let, he's let it run its course. Kind yeah. of. It's kind of encouraging to me when I have people similar to this in my life. And that, you know, it's just like, for a purpose, you know, that all things in God's economy serves a purpose. I wonder about it. You know, no, and, and I mean, we have to believe that there, you know, there was, could have, Come to his senses, but right. It does kind of highlight also that when he betrays Jesus, he goes and gets money for it. So he does seem to be, greed seems to be a little bit of the motivating factor here. Judas. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there. Jesus was there in Bethany at the home of Mary Martha. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they may also see Lazarus. See, the curio- a miracle curiosity, but like the museum, you know, the Ripley's, oh, let's go see this guy, he's dead. So it's not, they're not, it's not really leading them to faith, it's just curiosity. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So you just get this range of opinions, curiosity, hardened opposition, belief, and some of that belief may may or may not endure. We'll see. It's like this morning's parable, morning prayer about the parable of the sower and the seed from Mark's gospel. The you know this in a way kind of describes a little bit of this. Well, they, they get rid of the evidence. Well, wait a minute. Well, yeah, I mean, so so we, we don't want someone sitting around who says, yeah, this happened. You don't want a witness. You want to kill the... Well, clearly, they're in the mode of protecting their franchise at literally all costs. Well, and, and to, to consider this from a merely... Uh, I want to say something here that we have to kind of pay attention to, because on one level, obviously, this is a, you know, a hideous plot, but th- they know that that um, if there's an, there's been uprisings among the Jewish people, uh, there were people who claimed to be the Messiah, and when that, um, the following of that grew and spread, um, there tended to be a brutal Roman suppression. They didn't like they didn't like independence movements. So there is an aspect on the leadership of this puts the whole thing in danger. Um, now to draw parallels to us, because I see it with with even Christians now who get involved in things beyond really their vocation as Christians, whether they're political otherwise. And it's, it's amazing how compromises are justified because, hey, if we don't do this, you know, what's going to happen? And, and so you're, you're, you're arranging the events in the way you determined you need to arrange them in order to have the result you think you need to, to bring about rather than trusting God that you never know what God is doing. 
God is about to get killed, but it's going to be the salvation of the world. So when we see things around us disappoint us, we understand we never know what God is doing. And it's, 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 it's faithlessness to assume that God's not still in control. And we have to grab the reins and do it. And a lot of Christians have have kind of adopted a little bit of this. And it goes on all ends of the spectrum. You know, I'm not I'm not picking on anyone in particular, but they, we need to control this because if not, this will happen. And it's like, well, why don't you, you know, and this is why the posture of faith and prayer and discerning what God's calling us to do is what we're, what we believe we're called to do, because we don't know what God is doing. We may not like it, but but that just puts us in harmony with Christians throughout the ages. And John the Baptist, incidentally, in our gospel this Sunday, who, after saying, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand, and God's going to level the mountains, cut down the trees, got thrown in jail and beheaded. He didn't like that plan. But, so, before we, I, I do think that there's a way when we look at these characters in, in, these, in the passion narrative here and, the, and leading up to it, that it's easy to say, there's all bad. But before we do, this, this is human nature. It manifests itself in this way in every era. So they're justifying egregious compromise in order to, to promote their plan to save Israel. We must beware of our own Egregious willingness to engage in egregious compromise in order to promote our plan to further the kingdom, save America, whatever it is we think it is. We, we just have to learn to trust because we never know what God is doing, just like they did. So, verse 12. The next day, a great multitude had come that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So remember now that um, Bethany is a little bit of a safer distance. It's a village two miles from Jerusalem. It's over the Mount of Olives. And while people might be hanging out around, it's more private gathering. So Jesus is going to come from the home, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, over the Mount of Olives and down into the city. That's, that's what Palm Sunday is. So the it's not yet in the public setting where a confrontation is going to take place. Uh, it's at the home where people are curious. You know, the, the Pharisees, well, what, what are you going to do? But you, you can't, you know, there, there's, there's just not um, a setting in which that confrontation can take place. But be aware that in John's Gospel, this, he clearly portrays there are a lot of signs that Jesus did, but the raising of Lazarus, the undeniable miracle, precedes Palm Sunday and Jesus coming in where people, this is the God. All the expectation that someone will come to save us. So the next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees, went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Um, where does that come from in the Bible? Because these, these quotes here are not just random poems they've made up on the spot. They're 
from the, from the Psalms. Which Psalm? It's Psalm 118. It's Psalm 118, 126. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's perfectly fine to look at your cross-reference. Yeah. My main point is to be aware that this, and this is a, understood by all to be a messianic psalm about the God who's coming to save. So when they apply it, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to Jesus, it's clear they believe he is the Messiah who's coming to save us. But there's plenty of ironic meaning in that, too, because very few in the crowd understand what that means. And we know that by Good Friday, they will have changed their tune. And some of our Good Friday hymns, our Good Friday actually, um, you know, our Holy Week captures this. We come in, actually, Palm Sunday itself captures it because we go from triumphal entry to crucifixion. And then on, you know, Good Friday, we kind of enter into that um crucify him, which is the anger of disordered humanity when the Messiah doesn't do it the way we want him to. When God disappoints us, we get angry. So this they're not angry yet. They're happy because he's coming to save us. You know, it's like and and this is a pattern of the Christian life, you know, we, he comes to save, we experience something, a miracle, uh, uh, an answer to prayer, and, and it's all great, but what happens when we're called to endure through a, a season? Do we also shift, change our tune? So, so they quote Psalm 118, blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Where is that from in the Bible? Zechariah. Now, we're not going to enter into this kind of study here, but a good study, if we want to, we want to take an extra week on John, is if we go to Zechariah, and we understand in what context does that quote come? And what does Zechariah say about this Messiah? In what context in Psalm 118 does that come? That's a good, you know, go look at that. What does Psalm 118 say about the Messiah? Um, And this is, in general, if you want to study the New Testament in greater depth, when you find a quote excerpted, go and look at the bigger passage. What's this saying? It'll give texture to what the expectation of the crowd was in this, in this setting. Um, it's likely that they didn't just blurt out, for example, Psalm 118.26, but actually we're singing all of Psalm 118. These are certain psalms they, they sang in triumphal procession. And they would sing it probably when in the Old Testament um, the king would arrive in the city because that was the Messiah. And remember... Messiah is a Hebrew word that means anointed one. 
so that in the Old Testament, every king and priest was a Messiah. The Lord's anointed, when David is called the Lord's anointed, it means literally the Lord's Messiah. And so they could sing this for the Lord's anointed in the Old Testament, but all of these, we understand, prefigured, sort of capital T, capital M, that's how you do in English, Messiah. Everyone understood that there was someone coming because all of these interim figures of the Old Covenant didn't actually save Israel. Um, so, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Um, now, we know that you know a donkey is, is sort of a symbol of humility, but we should also know that in the Old Testament it was a royal animal, that the royal family rode on donkeys. Um, it, it could be that in the tradition of Israel, the reason that this was prescribed is so that kings would be humble because a donkey is not a um, a war horse. So Jesus is coming on, on, a, on, a, on a donkey humbly to die. He's not coming on a horse to conquer. However, we get to Revelation and this is my convicted belief based on what seems obvious when I dive deeply into the text. In Revelation, which I think at least has a horizon of being about the destruction of Jerusalem, the judgment that came on Jerusalem because Israel rejected the Messiah, he does come on a horse. And that's representative of the judgment that comes on Jerusalem. So he does come in humility to save, and then he comes in glory to judge. And humility we can receive with repentance in order that when he comes in glory, that's the whole theme of Advent, the Advent calling. So uh, we get to Revelation, There is he is on a horse. He rides on a white horse, a war horse. He goes out to conquer and all kinds of tension between the image of how the gospel goes out into the world the church is conquering, while it retains, it conquers through its humility, through its love, through its service. But then juxtaposed with when, when, when he appears at the end, it's going to be said it all right. There's all that. And it's, it's my conviction that Revelation, which also comes from the tradition of John, and, and, and works in all of the symbols that the Gospel of John works in, um, deals primarily with the consequence of this rejection of Jesus, which is God's judgment on Jerusalem. And when, we, when you really... We try, I, I try. That's a study you have to be really, really patient with. I, I, I really, I, I don't ever want to study Revelation with anyone, any group that doesn't want to take at least a year on it. Because when we start it, it just, it, it can't be done with, uh, okay, here's what this means about everyone being 
we did Revelations Day a couple of years ago on the weeknight, and I think everyone came thought, thinking we were going to tell them when the world was going to end or match up, you know, the signs to some current rulers like like people are used to on Prophecy Radio. And I realized that the real understanding of this is it just takes a lot more work. So, but I believe that I believe that um, it's even possible. Uh, that revelation was written first to deal with the destruction. And now John is writing a gospel after that already understands the full light of the consequence of it. And this is this and this um, this would account for some of John's language, the Jews, the lead the, the vitriolic language of the leadership, because he's seen that their hardened opposition led to the death of the Messiah and the end of Israel. And what the New Testament portrays is, the, is the, therefore the, the beginning of, of the new Israel in which all who put their faith in Jesus, the Son of God, are God's new covenant people. And, and that's very much written large in John. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. Any thoughts or questions about that? I said a lot there. Maybe to make any sense. But but um, but a don- but but the, the donkey coming out of donkey coming out of war horse. Those I- images both both are present in John in the Johannine tradition. Verse sixteen. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things written about him that they had done these things to him. So all these, like the recognition of um, the Zechariah uh, fulfillment, it didn't dawn on them on Palm Sunday. Later on, it was like, oh. And it could have been like John's gospel, Luke's gospel says in the upper room on Easter night, he, um, he, Open their understanding; they might comprehend the scriptures. So, for the disciples who are also a little bit blind to what's happening here, I mean, we would have been blind too. This is not culpable. We're, no, nobody before the cross really understood it. Oh yeah, he's going to die, and he's going to rise, and so let's not worry about it. You know, nobody understood it. Um, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. You know, spirit. So, so afterwards. When he rose and, they, and 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 Jesus gives them the spirit and understanding, it's like. Then you go back, and especially because most of them knew the scriptures, that that like the 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 cross and resurrection had like unlocked the key to the meaning of the whole thing. Verse seventeen. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. So that's, in John's gospel, what accounts for the big Palm Sunday crowd is this miracle of right raising Lazarus that has generated expectation and enthusiasm. Verse 19, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. 
they're, they're trying to crush this thing, but they can't. And here's the, the reality that this, that this expresses. It's an historical reality. Nobody can crush it. They try, they try to get rid of the witness by opposing it. They want to kill it. And they end up actually killing Jesus. Rose from the dead, he sent the spirit. And then all of a sudden, Pentecost, you've got a whole bunch of witnesses. And so in Revelation, it'll talk about, you know, the witnesses were killed, but then they rose up. And so they, they thought by killing Jesus, they got rid of it. Instead, his church came back to life, the body of Christ, and the witness grew. And everywhere the church has suffered opposition in those early centuries, I mean, it didn't like magically take off everywhere, but as people are faithful, witness and martyrdom. And witness, the Greek word for witness is martyr. So if you're, it, it's, it's just justice. That's how um, uh, a, the person who died became a martyr because they were the witness. And you'll see in, in the, like in Revelation, sometimes you have to make a choice. Whether you're, when it calls someone the faithful witness, they could just as easily say the faithful martyr. It's the same word. So that's what the church is always called to offer is faithful witness to the presence of Christ. Somebody's going to be opposed. It's called to continue to be faithful. And the world cannot overcome that witness because it's true and it lives in the, in, in the church, the body of Christ. And, and even when members of the body are killed, the, the witness lives on because the church is the living uh, body of Christ and is the kingdom of God and its destiny is to take over creation. We don't know how that's happening, but it is. And that's why we can't allow ourselves to get caught up in despair and hopelessness of the world. And that's why I advocated being of Advent. We have to spend at least as much time focusing on this as we do watching the news, which narrates the world for you in a very different way. Tells you it's all going to hell in a handbasket, especially your partisan side, whatever it is. You better hurry up, give money, or get anxious. You better hate that guy. You better hate this guy, because if you don't do it, it's going to. And and it's easy, you know. That's distract. So I don't mean that it can't be a form, but the balance is we have to stay rooted in the reality of the kingdom. The dynamic hasn't changed at all, <clears throat> and the fact that that it all around us. The gospel is opposed, well, all around Jesus, he was opposed. And that was the beginning of our salvation, not the end of anything. So you never know what God is doing. Verse 20. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. These would be Greek-speaking uh, Jews. Um, not just sort of people from Greece, pagans coming to visit, but uh, either Gentile converts to Judaism or Hellenistic Jews who spoke Greek. Uh, 
there were certain Greeks among those who came out to worship the feast. <clears throat> they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. This reminds me of, uh, somebody said there was a pulpit, I think in Scotland somewhere. The King James um, translation of verse 21 says, Sir, we would see Jesus. And that was the inscription on the pulpit to remind the preacher, sir, we would see Jesus. <laughs> so the per preacher didn't get off. Yeah. On <laughs> yeah. Verse 22, Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus, coming down the line here. Um, it's interesting, it suggests that Philip had some connection Philip is a Greek word, a Greek name, so it's not a Hebrew name, so he might have had some affinity with the Greek-speaking Jews. You know what Philip means? Lover of horses. Lover of horses. Phil Hippos. But Jesus answering them, saying, now, it said, the hour has come the Son of Man should be glorified. So the point about the Greeks is they want to come and have an audience and discuss it, kind of like maybe Nicodemus did back in chapter 3. Hey, let's have a talk. And Jesus like, no more talks. It's, this is something. That, and, and so in, and he says, the hour has come the Son of Man should be glorified. Um, so... Throughout John, we've had this idea, my hour has not yet come. And John's gospel is full of this ironic meaning. Because when he says to his mother at the wedding in Canaan, my hour has not yet come. Now he says, my hour has come. This is the time in, in the meaning of Cana, in the, in the higher spiritual meaning is, Now's my now's my time to make the new wine of the kingdom. And when he, on the cross, when the spear goes from the side out, will come water and blood, blood, wine, Eucharist, all those images come out there. Um, but before now, his hour had not yet come. So he avoided the confrontation. He slipped out of the crowd. But now his hour has come, and now he's going to face it head on. He's not going to run from it anymore. He's going to take on uh, the opposition. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So this is a principle of a tree. St. Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection, that just as when a tree, something on a tree, like an oak, when it falls off the branch, it really dies because it, it removes itself from the life-giving source of the thing. But it goes in the ground that contains the seed, the acorn, that becomes an oak. So that's a principle of nature that Jesus is applying now. He is going to die, give his life, fall to the ground, but his death is going to be a seed that, that springs up into new life. 
And therefore, he, he exhorts us then to follow that same pattern, saying, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my father, uh, him my father will honor. Now, hates his life, you know, it doesn't mean you have to, like, hate life. It doesn't mean, like, you can't enjoy, you know, some fruitcake made by the monks with some ice. He means, it gets, gets back to, you can't love anything in this world more than him. And if you're not willing to side with him against anything that pulls you away, that's where the compromise, the idolatry, and comes from. And so, and we have to be, and even family ties, that's what he said, you know, my I'm doing, who, who, my mother, my sister, who, those who do hear, who do what I say, do the will of God. So that's what hating our life means. It means despising anything in our life that might detach us from Him. And that's a, an interesting thing to look at. Do we have habits, patterns that are really have some unfaithfulness in it? Because that because that leads to not just death, but no, that leads to death with no resurrection. But when we're fully connected to him, it leads simply to life. We love our lives in him, which is not our life in the, so hating the world is loving, because in him we have life. And that's the idea. So that's that is rooting our life in him, in his, in the church, the body of Christ, will necessarily create some distance from the world. But yes, it will be a fuller life because it's life. And when we die, our bodies will also become a seed of, of, of resurrection life. Verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I came to this hour. So he's willing to do. It's kind of like, not my will, but thy will be done. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. So this means the voice of the Father is a kind of noteworthy event, epiphany, obviously. But not everybody got it, heard it. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. So the idea of now is the judgment. When Jesus offers himself as the offering for sin, and sin is atoned for. That gives him 
the authority then to judge. And one of the frames you get throughout Revelation is the judgments of God run True and just are thy judgments, O Lord. Because he is the one who judges right, right, rightly. And he's able to do it because he has fulfilled the covenant, has the right to judge. That's the image of um, our window, which also comes from Revelation, which is holding the scroll and the seven seals of the scroll from Revelation. He has unlocked the scroll. He's, he's fulfilled the covenant obligations, and therefore he has unlocked the covenant promises, and he can bring about the judgments on, on, on disobedience, which, which will vindicate his authentic people. So now is the judgment. Once his death seals and, so, and, and makes all that possible. And then by being lifted up is this idea of Jesus on the cross drawing people to himself. Salvation. Then the people answered him, we have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? They don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> then Jesus said to them, a little while longer and the light, light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, which you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Now, walking in the light would simply mean staying connected to Jesus. That's, I think, what he said. Walk in the light means stay connected to me. You don't understand what's going on. And that's a message for all of us when it's perplexing. Stay connected to Jesus. Follow him. Don't become unfaithful. Ask him to reveal what's going on. If we depart from him, we, we, we don't understand, but then we're in the darkness and we never will. But that's what he's talking about here. A lot of people are going to be offended and leave him. And now they, then they really won't understand. But they'll become objects of judgment rather than being saved from judgment. That's the idea here that Jesus is fulfilling the covenant and all those who are in him baptized into Christ through faith in Jesus Christ, all who are in him are saved from the judgment in him by virtue of their connection to him in the spirit. And all who are not then are subject to the judgment. That's a central theme of John's gospel. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe that the words of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now that comes from Isaiah 52, 53, which, which leads into the suffering servant passage read on Good Friday. Who has believed our report? And, and then it details in Isaiah 53 how this servant who suffers um, ransoms and, and, and fulfills. So Isaiah 53 was the central explanatory passage for the early church in, in, in bringing clear light to what the crucifixion was all about. So when he quotes it here, that's another passage where I can't get a verse here, but 
Therefore, Isaiah could not, they could not believe because Isaiah again said, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Now, that verse from Isaiah comes at the very beginning of Isaiah's ministry in chapter 6. And we read actually that passage at Advent Lessons and Carols. In the, in the year the king Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on the throne, exalted, and has a vision. He says, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then Isaiah, and then uh, the seraphim takes a, a coal, touches Isaiah's lips, and says, you know, you're clean. And then God says, who will go for me? Isaiah says, I'll go. He says, he, he says go. And speak to this people. Tell them to 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 hear, but don't understand. To see it, to see and not understand. To hear and not believe, because the result of Isaiah's ministry is going to be judgment, because they're not going to repent. But Jesus here is being portrayed by John as that prophet, the pen, the last testimony to old covenant Israel, calling her to repent. They're not going to do it. Yeah. It's the same passage he quotes there. It's it's using that same verse is Jesus' explanation for the parable of the sower and the seed. He says, he has ears to hear, let him hear. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. So they're afraid. They're silent believers now. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, Whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save it. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And this is his command. And this, I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father told me, so I speak. So John is very clear that um, here, here is the fulfillment of all the promises to Israel. The word made flesh, who speaks the word of God. And now judgment centers on the acceptance or rejection of him. The primary sin now is not just, oh, we thought a bad thought, secondary moral discussion. The primary sin is I see and hear the Son of God and I disbelieve.
and that's but that's and that's the um, so that's the truth, and that's why we put our faith in Jesus, and that's why we're witnesses to Jesus in the world. And the world is going to be like this. There's going to be hardened opposition to Jesus that tries to crush it at every turn. There's going to be curiosity on what are you doing. There's going to be, you know, people who believe for a while, and when it gets a little hard, they go away. But that's, that's uh, clearly what, what, what John is portraying. That chapter 12. Bishop? Yes. It seems like he, he's being, con, um, what's the word, contradictory or is con contradicting himself because first he says, Well, I understand why you don't believe and I won't judge you. And then he says, But you will be judged on the last day for this. Well, I think what, what he's saying is, um, that. I'm not going to personally, individually, like, say, you're in, you're out. He's going to say, he, what he's saying is, I've established the standard of judgment by revealing the word of God. Now, that word I've spoken is going to judge you. He who believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe in the Son of God does not have life. So, if there's disbelief, that word will be brought out as judgment rather than Jesus going eeny, meeny, miny, moe. The standard of judgment has been set. God has spoken. And that, and that word is eternal. As, as the gospel last Sunday said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. So this, this has, that has a last, so the standard of judgment is already, and this, this, is, this is why I think is a significant thing here, about the whole New Testament framework of salvation, because most people really misunderstand. I mean, and natural humanity sort of, <coughs> what I should say, maybe sort of the, the human nature part of us tends to rearticulate the gospel falsely as, yeah, we're gonna try to do good all our lives, and then we'll get to judgment day, and we hope Jesus says, hey, we did pretty good, you're in. And that's utterly what he's not saying. He's saying that you're, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you are saved from the judgment. And if you live your life in faithfulness to the Son of God, that's how we hold on to that hope of... of, of and, and here's what John would, I think John's gospel especially would say, because he doesn't say, if you believe in him, you will eventually get eternal life. He says, if you put your faith in him, you have it right now. So we already have this life that is not subject to death. And that's what will be revealed on the last day. It's not so much it will be given that which we don't have. And so what judgment is really the revelation of the true nature of things. In the full light of day, when our Lord comes and we see, we'll see. Um, the whole creation, St. Paul says, waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Because right now they're hidden. I mean, they don't look like 
you know, we're at the store. We don't look any different than anyone else. Um, beloved St. John says in 1 John, now we are the sons of God, children of God. Incidentally, when the New Testament uses the word sons as opposed to children, it means to emphasize that we're heirs. And women, from the Galatians passage, are also sons of God because they're heirs. It's not a gendered passage, but an inheritance word. But John says, now we're the children of God, and it's not been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. And I think the reality of, 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 of sort of the revelation on the last day will be there's this life that we have in him. And as he raises and says, rise, and we rise in the resurrection bodies, the glory that's hidden is revealed and is be very clear who's not connected to him, who doesn't have life. And then it's, that's life. And that's kind of the meditation, say, on judgment and hell is not so much that God says, okay, now I'm going to light a fire. It, it's the reality of life that's not in him. It's not life. It's whatever that is. You might describe it as fire. Here we are. Any questions about that before we do our study? We'll move on to some um, um, happier, intimate passages. Of, well, I, mean, the, I think it's a happy passage. I think the reality is there's always this tendency to soften the gospel up, to act like there's not a decision to make, to act like there's not a distinction between following Jesus and not following Jesus, between faithfulness and unfaithfulness, like everyone just going to the same place. Our world is full of that implication. And we must be clear that that's not what it says. Not what it says. So, next passage, next we'll get into the um, Last Supper scene in John's Gospel, which curiously does not have the Last Supper in it. So we'll talk about that. Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us, give us peace this day and forever. Amen. Well, good to have with us Michelle, Nancy, Christine, Mimi, Joan, Ed, Rhonda, Yuri. The crowd online. You're sounding more like a Baptist preacher. Well, you know, the Baptists aren't wrong. No, I know. I grew up with them. Yeah, they just, I they, they're, they're, there's That's missing elements, but 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 the idea that salvation comes only by Jesus isn't one of them. That's why I tease you about. That. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I was, in, I'm influenced by that, by that uh, aspect of evangelicalism, and the problem of evangelicalism now is utterly lost. Yeah. Now it's just about how to go to church and feel good. You know, the, the Billy Grahams or a guy named radio, a guy named Walter Martin, used to be on the radio. You know, this guy's, yeah, these were Baptists who said, well, and, and Walter Martin said, you know, he was Episcopalian. 
And wow. and when he went to the Episcopal Church, he said, "I, you don't believe anything. I'm not just that's that's why he he had been you know he, he, that that's what happened. But that was evangelicalism in its clear sense presents the reality of Jesus and calls people to faith and makes it clear that this is a call. And now we just got into, hey, how's your life? Come and you know yeah. whatever. Yeah. The self like, is kind of the center, and, it's about and that's why it's disintegrating. Yeah. yeah. That's it, because if it doesn't do what it was called to do, it has no it has no life. It's like John's gospel, which is whatever you're just saying, what the culture is saying, and pretty soon it will be gone. And I do think, I mean, you know, to, to the role of the tradition is that the energy that life does need a form, a tradition to grow in. And the real problem with the evangelical movement, it doesn't provide a language and framework of growth. It, it, and, and so it, it's, it's always converting, but it doesn't really have a way to understand what does it look like to grow from this initial place of conversion to a, a fully mature. I don't say that no, this too, I don't mean to say no evangelicals ever talk about growth. There's a lot of language of spiritual growth now in the evangelical movement and and is coming in, but they struggle with it because it's not native to the evangelical way, which has been largely, you got to believe in Jesus, you got to be saved. So how do we then go to, how do we grow in that salvation? It's interesting. They kind of adopted the 12 step model. What is that thing that they have now called that? Oh, but, they, but they bring in the 12 step program and they use that as a roadblock. Is it called? Celebrate Recovery? Celebrate Recovery, that's it. It was salvation every Sunday. Well, you heard it preached, there yeah. was an altar call every Sunday, right. and you had discipleship classes you expected to be in, that's really true. Yeah. And then there was prayer meeting on Wednesday night. And then there was. Yeah. So as, there was as, as, as a sign I saw driving to a uh, southern town when I was my time in the south, Bible study Wednesday night. Uh, yes, welcome, members expected. Yeah, I I would what I what I would do because we can't. This is a big question we can't unpack in the tail end of Bible study. But N.T. Wright's book, "Surprised by Hope," is the book that I think articulates that. So if you really want to pursue the idea, get the book by N.T. Wright called "Surprised by Hope," and give that to her and talk to her about the concepts N.T. Wright deals with. Because it's just otherwise. But I mean. First of all, if one believes in Jesus, you don't have to believe all the right things about what happens to you after death to, to go to whatever state of continued life we get. So it isn't necessarily absolutely essential that we work all that stuff out.
Dianne. And the other thing I'd say about what Diane said about the Baptist thing was conversion every Sunday. If you understand the liturgy correctly, you are coming to Jesus every Sunday, and every Sunday you're being told to repent. So your your liturgical participation needs to be animated by that spirit of listening. Yeah, what do I need to? And and so for us, it's not just a circle that we're always going back to the same place, but it's a progressive cycle. And and that's that's the nature of time. Each week comes back to a place which is closer to the completion than we were before. And so we we continue as we grow into. And our repentance this week is not just like a general sorrow sorrow for sin, but a deeper understanding of the way maybe we're failing to love a particular way this week. So repentance grows, faith grows, our life in Christ grows. And that's the that sometimes I know the Baptists would have said that was true, but they didn't have a great language for how how to, to articulate it over time. And and sometimes it because of that it it there were sometimes blind spots and what that growth looked like. And then also it could lead to, since you're supposed to be saved, if you had a big problem creep up five years into your faith, it wasn't always possible to bring that to the table because sometimes the, and this is where I think the celebrate recovery kind of things are, are actually what the honesty that, yeah, just because you believe in Jesus doesn't mean you don't have some deep-seated struggles that it's going to take you 10 or 20 years to work for Keep walking life. So, so we want to run a place where you say, "Yeah, I'm struggling with this," and that's and, and to, to be to create in the church the with the ability to say, "Yeah, we're struggling. This is a, we're a group of people who are growing into something." And if if but you, it's interesting that they don't really have that main. It has to be a size. The people who really are like, "I am so screwed up. I'm going to go." Well, and then the other problem is this only then becomes because we're really a language of growth is for everybody. Yes. Everybody's got issues, whether they believe it or not, whether they understand it or not. There becomes why well, I have addiction. So that's where the addicted people go. But the good people are generally fine. They're just in church. So that's right. like really bad. And you're, yeah, you're <laughs> that's, but it's, it's misleading. Yeah. Because people are proclaiming they're okay or not. Right. But they're able to hide. <laughs> right. No. And I, I remember going to an AA meeting with my brother, and I was in one of those churches where they never talked about growth. It was like, I like this. These yeah. people are real. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. right. Anyway, well, Ron Elizabeth, I got to turn off, put away. Good to see you. Good to see you as well.